every single diet book was written by somebody and that was the diet that worked for them. And so they're like, here is the diet that everyone should follow. And so they would write this diet book based on what worked for their body. And then you would try it and you'd be like, that feel terrible. And then they would find you know, all the evidence of to why this was the best diet for everybody. And you know, with the scientific research, you can find evidence to support anything, really. So that's the thing about figuring out what foods work for you and also finding what intermittent fasting lifestyle works for you. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 204 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. If you're a regular listener, you likely know about my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. We call it A-OK for short. This is the six-week program that I built off of my patented cartography system to help ADHD women figure out what they should do with their life. Now, we know that ADHD is completely misnamed, right? We don't have a deficit of attention. We have a surplus of attention. We are interested in so much, which often means that we struggle with trying to figure out which of the many interests that we do have is actually the one that we should pursue. Now, most systems, most coaching programs, personality tests, think of the Meyer-Briggs, Sally Hogshead's Fascinate test, the Enneagram. You have this list of categories or types, and then you figure out which one do you fit best into? Well, with AOK, we work from the inside out. I don't worry about where you fit in because I believe you were meant to stand out. And this is the problem with ADHD women, right? We've lived our entire life always trying to fit into systems, structures, roles, careers that don't work for us relationships. I should add that one too. With AOK, we are going to figure out who you really are, what's important to you, what you value, what your strengths, passions, superpowers, and purpose are. And then you're going to build your life around that. Doesn't that make so much more sense? 
AOK includes live office hours with me, a community, the AOK system, worksheets. You're going to create your very own AOK intelligence report. And I want to tell you, it's a lot of fun. And this is the first time that I'm opening up an AOK session in January. You know, because of my book, I think I've told you that I'm writing a book for HarperCollins Morrow. So because of that book, I didn't run AOK over the summer because I thought I wouldn't have time and it would just be too much. But I did run it in September. And when I ran it in September, I realized that it was a mistake not to offer it in the summer because it is my most favorite thing that I do. And it keeps me happy and sane. I just love our AOK women. So we're going to run it in January. We're going to start on Tuesday, January 24th. We're going to have our first office hours on Wednesday, the 25th, and every Wednesday after that for the next six weeks. What a great way to finally discover who you are exactly and what you're meant to do with your one life. And what a great way to start the new year. So we're offering an early bird promotion of $200 off of your ADHD brain is A-OK with the code HOLIDAYS if you sign up between now and December 6th. If you're interested in giving yourself a gift over the holidays and want to know more, pop on over to tracyotsuka.com forward slash AOK. And don't forget to use the code holidays. I'd love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our regular programming. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. And that includes our guest, we think, today, Jen Stevens. We're going to talk about what she thinks about whether or not she would have been diagnosed with ADHD. So Jen Stevens is the author of the New York Times and USA Today bestseller, Fast, Feast, Repeat, and Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle, an Amazon number one bestseller. She has also written Cleanish, Eat Mostly Clean, Live Mainly Clean, and unlock your body's natural ability to self-clean, which was released, Jen, this year, right? It was. It was January of 2022. Ah, which is another Amazon number one bestseller. Jen has lived the intermittent fasting lifestyle since 2014, losing over 80 pounds. She is the host of two top-ranked podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and the Life Lessons Podcast with Sherry Bullock. Jen, you have been busy. Did I get all that right? You did. That's all exactly right. And before all that writing that I did, I was an elementary teacher for 28 years. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've got quite quite the background there. But, um, you know, you, you teased at it at the beginning, you know, would I have been diagnosed with ADHD? I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> so tell me what you were like as a child. Oh, my Lord, I was a mess. I was just a mess. I was born in 1969, so that puts me, you know, everybody can figure out how old I am there. But, you know, I went through school, mostly in elementary school in the 70s. I actually, my birthday is in July, so I started kindergarten as just barely four. I mean, just barely five. I just turned five. I was four, turned five in July, just started kindergarten, and I could already read. So the they said to my mom, she just really needs to be in first grade. So they popped me in first grade. There I was, barely barely five in first grade. And my earliest memories are being, once I was in first grade, everybody else got to, you know, 
sit on the floor and I had to sit over there in the corner because I couldn't be still, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't know. I think a lot of it got excused for, oh, well, she's so young, but I really had a hard time paying attention. I have thought back to my own elementary school years and I do not remember until probably seventh grade ever recalling a teacher standing in the front of the classroom teaching us. Like, I don't remember them ever doing that. I'm sure they did it. I have lots of memories from school, me being on the floor, me talking to my friends, me working in groups, you know, <laughs> lunchtime, recess, all of that. But I don't remember the teacher ever instructing us. Now, I know the 70s were wacky, but I'm pretty sure teachers still stood at the front of the room and taught you. Yeah. So funny. And I was always like, I would have all A's, but I would have needs improvement for conduct and it would keep me off the honor roll because I just could not focus. I just remember I couldn't ever find anything. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So as a teacher for 28 years, I would often look at the little girls, especially the little gifted girls who were such a mess and think, man, I bet that's exactly who I was when I was that age. But in the 70s, they weren't really diagnosing us as ADHD, at least where I was. Especially Um, not girls. Right, especially not girls. So I think, like I said, a lot got excused as, well, Jen skipped a grade and she's gifted and she's so young because I I was so young. I graduated high school at 16. And I think that a lot of that just, you know, fell through the cracks. Absolutely. I made it through. (laughs) You did? Yeah. So were you the chatty kid? Oh, Lord, yeah. I would talk to literally anybody. You know, there's this meme that, I don't know, teachers passed it around a lot. And it was Arnold from Different Strokes. It's like, teacher, it doesn't matter who you sit me next to. I talk to everybody or something like that. And that was me. You know, and I remember when I was in sixth grade, it was me and this other boy. We, all the desks were in like little groups. People got to sit in groups, except for me and him. We were over by the wall. (laughs) (laughs) And we were not allowed to sit by anybody. And I just remember that because I would talk to really whoever they would put me by. And now I guess the joke is on all of the teachers who said Jen talks too much because I'm a podcaster and I get to talk for literally a living. (laughs) So, you know, and I, I always like I joke about that because what we were as a small child is who we literally should be as an adult. I just saw Steve Kornacki. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a commentator on MSNBC and he does all the numbers for the political campaigns, like what's going on right now. And he's so brilliant at it. And they showed a clip of him as, oh, I don't know, an eight or 10 year old, literally, you know, talking about a political campaign from, I think it was the eighties. I mean- That's so funny. Yeah. There's, there are videos. My mom had all these- home videos that were my grandparents. They were back like, back in the day, you know, when they would make them on the reel-to-reels, I guess, the little cameras, and they had no sound. So it was just video. And one one time we had all, I had a bunch of them digitized into a DVD and put together all the videos of me that my grandfather took of me when I was like, one or two. I was running, running, running from one side to the other. I was never still, but I was like, oh my God, look at me. Run, run, run. So yeah. Okay. I have a question before we get into what we're really going to talk about. I am so impressed that you were able to self-publish Fast Feast Repeat. Like, Well, I self-published well- Delayed on Deny. Delayed on Deny is self-published. Fast Feast Repeat is traditionally published. Oh my gosh. Okay. So... <laughs> So I'm going to 
tell you what happened. So I thought Fast Feast Repeat was the newest book. So I bought that and I've read most of it. Um, was almost done. And then I was like, wait, what is this cleanish? And so yeah. I bought cleanish. And since I bought cleanish, I've not been able to put it down. So I couldn't go back to Fast Feast Repeat. So you're telling me there is another book. Right. Delight on Deny. That was the book I self-published. And I self-published that in 2016. I mean, I was a nobody. I had some I Facebook. I said that yeah, here. Yeah. You did. You mentioned it when you okay. introduced me. But no one would have published that book in traditional publishing. And I, so I just wrote it and put it out into the world. And that book has sold thousands and thousands of copies. It's still, you know, it's always in the top 50 of weight loss books on Amazon every single day. So people are still buying it, even though Fast Feast Repeat came out in 2020 and it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, I still love Delayed on Deny. It's it's where I started. It's it's for people who maybe don't want to read as much. It's shorter. But Fast Feast Repeat is really everything that you need to know to live an intermittent fasting okay. lifestyle. So and that's, yeah. And book. you really pretty much, yeah, you pretty much have to be traditionally published if you want to be a New York Times bestseller. I think every now and then a book mm. will sell so many copies that's self-published that it will be a New York Times bestseller, but it's very, very unusual. Got it. It was so well written. And I'm, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book. I just sent my manuscript over and I just, it was hell. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> it is no joke. Yeah. So I, you know, I read Fast Feast Repeat and I'm like, this is so well done. How did she do this? So which do you like better? The traditional well, publishing route or self? There are benefits to both. Are you going the traditional publishing route? Yeah, I am. <laughs> there are benefits to both. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you exactly how quickly I wrote to load on tonight, but let's just say I wrote it pretty fast. I even can't believe it going back, <laughs> looking at it myself. But I wrote it and I got it out there and I was able to get it published very, very quickly. Like right after you write it, you just go, boop, it's up there. Because it's, you know, the way self-publishing works. Most people go through Amazon, Kindle Direct Publishing, they print these books on demand. It doesn't cost you anything to self-publish a book through right. through Amazon's um, KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing. It's just bam, it's out there. And so it, you know, you have to obviously I'm I was a teacher, so I was pretty good at editing, proofreading, that sort of thing. And so that wasn't hard. So there's a plus with that, but you're on your own. I had some trouble with book pirating because it was such a success. People like Ugh. stole it and made copies of it. I mean, it was ridiculous. I could go on for that for a whole different hour podcast. But with a traditional publisher, you have you know more people behind you. You have a team, more quality control where that goes. But it also moves as slow as molasses, which you're learning, yeah. right? And also, it's like there's no flexibility. Like when I put Delay, Don't Deny out into the world and the very like first day it was available, someone said, I found a typo in the introduction. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so I was able to like fix it, re-upload it, and so like probably only 100 people have the one with that typo in it because I, I fixed it immediately. Whereas with Fast Feast Repeat, when I was reading the audiobook version of it, this was in March of 2020. I'm reading the audiobook. It was scheduled to be released. It hadn't even gone to the printer yet. How do you read the audio? Oh my God, it's horrible. Oh <laughs> gosh, like, is this something else I have to look forward well, to? Well, it depends. That's a whole other story. But I was reading the audiobook, and while I was reading it, of course, you find every single typo. 
when you're reading a book out loud. And so I was making notes of everything that needed to be fixed. There was oh, like a whole okay. section. I get it. You were reading it to record it. Yeah, I was recording it. Got I it. While okay. I was recording it, while I was recording it, I found mistakes and I wrote, wrote them down. There was like a whole section that had been moved somewhere that it didn't belong, that had been right, and then it was wrong. Oh, and my. And so I, I let my editor know. She's like, well, it's too late. We're already in line at the publisher. The first run is just going to be wrong. I'm like, what? They haven't even been printed yet. This is March. The book's not going out till June. She's like, you can't get out of line at the printer. <laughs> <laughs> so no problem now. All the books have the, that first run. That was only, I don't know, 25,000 books. So those are long gone and sold. So anybody buying it now, you get the, <laughs> you get the one where the errors were found. But... You know, with self-published, you can fix them immediately. So, wow. Okay, so you are here because one of our Irish listeners, her name is Katrina. She introduced me to your work, and Katrina, these are her words: thanks your work in intermittent fasting for clearing her brain fog, positively affecting her mood because she's no longer on a constant glucose roller coaster, and for the first time in twenty years, being able to lose and maintain weight in a way that has felt effortless and healthy. Those were her words. And so I want to talk about intermittent fasting, eating clean, and living clean. But first, I just want to say a couple things about intermittent fasting. So, or just about ADHD women. Okay. Right. So, studies show that ADHD women struggle with very unhealthy weight at a rate that is five to 10 times higher than women without ADHD. And See, I didn't know, know that. Can yeah. I can I make a hypothesis as to why yeah. I might think why? Well, because our brains are searching for stimulation. It, would that be it? And impulsivity. Yeah. And something called um, the reward deficiency syndrome is common with women with ADHD where we just don't get the same satisfaction that we expect from, let's say, a piece of cake, right? And so then we're like, well, maybe it's the second piece of cake that will do it. That one doesn't do it. Then maybe the third. And so, you know, that is the thought behind it. So beyond that, we also know that um, from studies with girls with ADHD, that they are 3.6 times more likely to develop an eating disorder than wow. without ADHD. And so obviously eating disorders are very serious. And so I just want to say, if you're struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, please check with your doctor before you change anything. Now, I also want to say that I've had three dietitian nutritionists on this podcast who have ADHD. They specialize in ADHD, and they've all had an eating disorder as well. That's Rebecca King, Nicole DeMassi-Malcher, and Alita Storch. All three of them are outstanding. For some reason, I only asked two of them this question. It was Nicole DeMassi-Malcher and Alita Storch, um, you know, what, when I had them on the podcast. I wanted to know what they thought about intermittent fasting. Because they both work with clients with eating disorders, neither one of them recommends it to their clients, but both felt that as long as it's not activating for disordered eating behaviors and it works for you, great. I mean, what Nicole offered, which I think makes so much sense, is she said, look, we've been fasting for thousands of years. We were hunters and gatherers. You know, when we found the berries on the bush, we would probably eat all the berries off the bush because we didn't know when the next time we'd find berries on a bush. So I am an intermittent faster. Like Katrina, our listener from Ireland, when I am intermittent fasting, I have much less brain fog, I am mentally sharper, and my mood is elevated. There is no question about that. The yeah, that's the power of ketones, right? Yes. Ketones in the brain. 
and I, I want you to explain all this, but okay. I just feel like I have to make this comment. Right. That, you know, you know how it is. I, I I'm, do. I'm worried because of eating disorders, frankly. So the additional byproduct is I get all those other benefits, but I don't worry about my weight. I don't believe in diets. They do not work. I do not use intermittent fasting as a diet. It's just really easy for me to eat this way. You know, I've never been hungry in the morning. And from the time I was little, I was told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. My dad used to stand there with a glass of milk because I refused to eat and the car keys when I was 16. You know, I couldn't get them unless I downed the glass of milk. <laughs> and I just feel like with intermittent fasting, I can finally be an intuitive eater. Yeah. The only oh. thing it cuts out is all that evening snacking, which was terrible for my health to begin with. So yeah. The well, there's goal. a lot to unpack there, Tracy. <laughs> Let yeah, me see if I, I can hit all those high points there. But you are so right when we say, and I say this as well in Fast Feast Repeat, there's a chapter with fasting red flags. And one of them is whether you've ever been officially diagnosed with an eating disorder. Because fasting is a tool. I mean, laxatives are a tool. Carrots are a tool that, that people with eating disorders misuse, right? So many things, uh, but that doesn't mean that laxatives are bad, carrots are bad, or intermittent fasting is bad. Uh, someone with an eating disorder has a relationship, usually a relationship with your body disorder, thinking about food. You might have body dysmorphia, impulse control, like you're saying before, that, that comes along with the ADHD. And so you do have to proceed with caution before you begin an intermittent fasting lifestyle. If you have a therapist, I would recommend. You're doing this under the supervision of a therapist. All that being said, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely had disordered eating. Yeah. And for the first time in my entire life, since I started intermittent fasting in 2014, from 2014 till now, I feel like that that disorder is is broken. That disorder thinking about food, about my body, the obsession with is it time to eat yet? Is it time to eat yet? Should I eat again? Have I had too much? I don't have to think about it anymore. All those thoughts are gone from my brain. And so I finally have that peace with food. You mentioned intuitive eating. I always wanted to be an intuitive eater. And I read all the books about intuitive eating. I read all the books about everything, honestly. Yeah. But intuitive eating really resonated with me because I'm like, honestly, that's got to be how our bodies are designed to work. You know, you see animals in the wild. They're not overweight unless they're fed by humans or living in the zoo or pets, right? <laughs> you never pets. see yeah. overweight squirrels unless people are feeding them, but which actually does happen now. But I knew that our bodies had to have a perfect way of keeping it in balance. But when I read those intuitive eating books, they always said, eat whatever you want to eat and stop when you've had enough. And if you want to eat, ask yourself, am I hungry? Well, for me, when I said, am I hungry? The answer was always, yeah. So I just ate and ate. And really, intuitive eating was the last thing that I did before I really started intermittent fasting. And intuitive eating got me up to 210 pounds. But now I would actually describe myself as an intuitive eater within the paradigm of intermittent fasting. Now, for some reason, the intuitive eating community despises intermittent fasting. And I, I get it in a way because it feels totally contradictory to everything that they say. You know, eat when you're hungry and intermittent fasting, you're not eating because you're fasting and you're going to yeah. eat later. But 
I just can't express, you understand it, but anyone who's never tried it, the freedom from having to think about, should I eat now? Should I eat now? Should I eat now? Goes away when you're, you're like, well, my window is closed. I'm not eating right now. So why don't you explain what it is for, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners won't have a clue what we're talking about, okay. like what it looks like. Basically, let's, let's just talk about the traditional way everyone is eating now. Most people, you know, when you wake up, if, if you're following the modern world, you wake up in the morning, you have breakfast soon after waking, followed by snacks throughout the day, because we've all been told over the years that you need to eat six times a day to boost your metabolism. I don't know, maybe now it's eight times a day, mm-hmm. whatever it is. You're supposed to eat from the minute your feet hit the floor till after dinner, or you know, maybe dinner's the last thing you eat, but you're supposed to eat nonstop to keep your metabolism revved. And that all, you know, sounds great. So everyone's heard breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So we're, we're doing that. We're snacking. And because of that, we're on that blood sugar roller coaster all the time where we eat, we fuel our bodies, our blood sugar goes up. And then an hour or two later, our blood sugar goes back down. So what do we do? We put something else in. We're constantly putting fuel into our bodies. And so our body is running on whatever we're putting in or whatever we're about to put in. And it can never really tap into our fat stores for fuel. And so we're always hungry and we're trapped on that up and down, up and down with our blood sugar. With intermittent fasting, you teach your body to be metabolically flexible. You know, if you look around, most of us have a lot of fuel with us all the time. (laughs) (laughs) That is stored on our bodies for that rainy day that never comes. You know, you talked about, you know, in in the past when people had to eat the berries when they found them. Well, there's always a berry within arm's reach, or you can drive to a berry, or you can drive to a Starbucks, or you can eat your berry granola bar, whatever it is that right. you have in your purse. And berries is probably the least of our worries, <laughs> it's right? It's true. It's true. It's it's your berry frappuccino or whatever it is that you're having. And so we have all those concentrated sources of um, of highly caloric foods all around us. But we're meant to be metabolically flexible, meaning when there's not food coming in, we can tap into those fat stores that are there without getting hangry, I might add. Our bodies can flip that metabolic switch, which means, all right, glucose isn't coming in. I can generate ketones from the stored fat on my body. And those ketones actually fuel the brain very, very well, keeping you steady, especially if you're someone who struggled with ADHD, I think we might be more affected by the crashes. Like we're more likely to look, like you said, look for that stimulation coming from needing to constantly fuel ourselves until we're metabolically flexible. So when you're an intermittent faster, hunger is not an emergency. You might have a a wave of a stomach growling like around, I don't know, for me, maybe around noon or one o'clock. I haven't opened my window yet. I might have a little rumble of hunger And then I'm like, all right, I'm not opening my window yet. My body flips that metabolic switch, starts making ketones. My brain is well-fueled until I choose to open my window later. So I eat all of my food for the day, usually within about a four to six-hour period of time. There are a lot of ways you can structure intermittent fasting to work for you. So, you know, someone might be thinking, oh, my gosh, I could never do that. Well, that's not how you start. <laughs> you don't yeah. start with with what I'm doing. In, in my book, Fast, Feast, Repeat, there's a 28-day fast start. And you have 28 days to teach your body to be metabolically flexible. You gradually ease in like you would, like, you know, couch to 5K. You don't get off the couch on day one and run a 5K. The same is true with building your intermittent fasting muscle. 
So um, what would that look like? It can be all sorts of things. It might be just as simple as, you know, you're you're trying to teach your body to burn fat for fuel. So the most ease-in type approach you could do, the first day you get up and instead of having cereal for breakfast, you have a low-carb breakfast and a low-carb lunch and a normal dinner. You might think, well, that's not fasting at all. It isn't. But you're just teaching your body you're not putting as much glucose in during the day. And so your your body's like, okay, I'm going to have to shift to fat. Of course, at that point, it's fat that you're eating through your low-carb breakfast, your low-carb lunch. Now, you might be thinking, is Jen going to tell me to be low-carb? No. <laughs> Notice I said low-carb breakfast, low-carb dinner, or low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, regular dinner. Eventually, you stop eating the low-carb breakfast if you're doing the ease-in approach. Then you're just having low-carb lunch, regular dinner. When you say low-carb, what does yep. that look like? Well, that's whatever you want it to be. There's so, there's so many definitions of low-carb out there. Your goal is just you're trying to teach your body to be metabolically flexible. And you know if you want to really ease in, this is a good way to do it. Now, there are other people. There's another approach, the, the rip-off-the-band-aid approach. That would be more like for someone like me. I don't want to eat any low-carb meals. I don't want to eat any special meals at all. I just want to eat. So maybe for <laughs> someone like that, you start on day one, you just skip breakfast completely and you wait and you open your window with lunch, any kind of lunch you want. And maybe you have an eight hour eating window that first week and you have lunch and dinner and that's it. And so you're you're ripping off that Band-Aid. Maybe week two, your window might be six hours instead of eight. And so you're gradually you know, working up. The goal is by the end of the 28 days, your body is on the way to being metabolically flexible or it is metabolically flexible. And during your eating window, you choose the foods that work best for your body. Now, you mentioned you know, before, you, know, you don't want to count anything. I don't either. I don't want to eat in any special way. You also mentioned before that intermittent fasting is not a diet, and it isn't. It is about when you eat. Your diet is what you eat. You can eat any kind of foods that, that you choose and be an intermittent faster. Um, I do recommend that other than you know the low-carb breakfast, low-carb lunch, regular dinner, if, if you're choosing that most basic ease-in approach, other than that, I recommend that you not change what you're eating for the first 28 days because sometimes people will try to do too much at once. They're like, you know, I want to be an intermittent faster and I want to eat clean. So I'm going to rip off the Band-Aid with intermittent fasting. I'm going to have a five-hour eating window on day one and I'm going to eat only clean foods. And whereas the day before you're eating the, you know, standard American diet all day long, that is really asking for trouble because you're going to be trying to do too many things. You're not going to be able to stick to it and then you'll quit. So really think, think about what's the one thing you want to change. And for most people, that is you want to just teach your body to be metabolically flexible, learn how to be fat adapted. Your body has to learn how to do it and ease in however you need to. So when you say metabolically flexible, what do you mean? That's a great question. You know, we are designed to be able to switch fuel sources as needed. 2,000 years ago, you're, maybe you're a nomad, your tribe is wandering around. You don't know when you're going to get to eat. So let's imagine you need to hunt or gather or whatever it is to get your food. You need to have enough energy to do that. And if you haven't eaten in a couple of days because you couldn't find any food, if you were also lethargic and couldn't think straight, how successful are you going to be hunting or gathering? Not very. So the metabolic flexibility 
is, is how we're designed to be. We are designed to feel great without fuel coming in because we've got that fuel on our bodies that we can switch to. Then when you find the few food you eat, your body switches fuel sources to what you're, you're bringing in. So that's what it means to be metabolically flexible. I am metabolically flexible now. So when I'm fasting, I feel great. And when I eat, my body switches fuel sources. And then after it's used all, all that and stored what was left, whatever, it switches fuel sources again. And so I don't feel that that hangriness, that up and down is just steady. Hmm. And how long does it take most people to get there to feel like they're metabolically flexible? You know, that is a great question, and it really depends. Someone who is metabolically healthy, it could happen pretty quickly, maybe two or three weeks. Someone who has been overweight for a long time, struggled for years, has a lot of insulin resistance, if you're obese, it might take you six weeks, eight weeks. It's hard to know, 12 weeks because your body is having to do a lot of things. But you just know that it gets better over time. And once you flip that metabolic switch, you're going to feel so much better. But 28 days is like really just the average because by the time you get through 28 days, most people are feeling so much better that they don't want to stop fasting. Yeah. And I mean, studies also show that intermittent fasting, it improves memory, focus, learning, overall executive functions. And I know I read one study, but I believe there are many. Is that correct? Oh, so many. Yes. And there there's so many studies about intermittent fasting. And I like to call it the health plan with the side effect of weight loss because, you know, it's a really healthy way to live unless you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or a child, and you're still growing, which I wouldn't recommend it, obviously, for any of any of those situations. But for most of us, you know, we are not designed to be constantly fueling ourselves from food that we're eating six times a day, no matter what, you know, the magazines are telling you to do. That's not how we're meant to be. We're meant to be metabolically flexible. So I really think that, you know, the research is very solid. I've talked to several prominent researchers. Um, one of them is Dr. Mark Matheson. He um, is now retired, but he worked for Johns Hopkins. And his area of research is brain health. And he's done lots and lots of research related to you know, Alzheimer's, neurological health, that sort of thing. He himself is also an intermittent faster. He has been fasting since the 80s. Like he has been having a daily eating window since since the 1980s. And that's what I find to be true. The researchers themselves, when they study longevity, brain health, metabolic health, they pretty much all turn into intermittent fasters because they're so convinced by the science. I, I talked to a longevity expert scientist one time on my podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and he said he felt like the, the most effective thing you could do for longevity is intermittent fasting. I mean, that was huge. And I mean, that is his specialty, longevity. And to hear that these people, they know. They know what the research shows. People who study autophagy, which is our body's cellular housekeeping system, those researchers are also intermittent fasters as soon as they understand the power of it. That says a lot. So, Jen, tell us what autophagy is. I think this is fascinating. It really, really is. And autophagy is a word that unless you were like a researcher or, I don't know, a top-level biologist maybe, none of us had ever heard this word until 2016. And prior to 2016, really everyone in the intermittent fasting community that I followed 
really thought the only reason intermittent fasting worked is because it allowed us to eat fewer calories somehow. But in 2016, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to a researcher about autophagy research. And suddenly we're all talking about it because one of the things that upregulates autophagy is fasting. So what is autophagy? I said it's our body's cellular housekeeping cleanup system. Think about if you were having a party at your house. If you were having a party at your house 24-7 and the party never ended, new people were coming all the time, the party kept going, how trashed would your house be? It would be a mess, right? Well, your body is like that too. When you're constantly feeding yourself all waking hours, your body doesn't have time to clean up anything. So we need to pause from eating. Just like if all the guests went home from the party, you would be able to clean your house up. Same thing with with your body. When you stop eating, your body can rummage around and say, all right, well, nothing's coming in. There's no new food coming in. I'm going to clean up some of the stuff that's here, some of this junky stuff. Maybe I can recycle it, use it for something else. And that's actually what your body does. The old junky proteins, the the cell parts that are not working right, your body can break them down, rebuild things. So it's our breaking down phase. You know, it makes a lot of sense. That's the period of time during the fast when you're tapping into your fat stores for fuel. You're breaking down the old junky things with autophagy. So all that's happening at the same time. And it's, go, go ahead. One of the things that you mentioned, I'm not sure in what book it was, but I just found it fascinating, was how autophagy works with skin. So I can't remember who the researcher was, but he never had to remove skin when people lost large amounts of weight. With fasting, Jason Fung yeah. is is who that yeah. is, and he yes. um, he has worked with lots and lots of patients who, and he uses fasting therapeutically. Um, he's actually reversed type two diabetes in his patients. He's a nephrologist, so he, he's a kidney expert. But he said that he's never had to refer a patient. You know, even patients who lose over a hundred pounds never had to refer them for skin removal surgery because autophagy breaks up that extra protein, which might be your excess skin that's hanging there. And, you know, that's not what happens if you're eating, you know, a a typical low-calorie diet with breakfast, snacks, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. Your body never has to, you know, tap into that extra skin for, you know, break it down. We've actually heard things that sound unbelievable from people who do intermittent fasting. Like, for example, the first time I heard it, Donna Doobie, she was a guest on my podcast years ago, probably 2018 is when I interviewed her. And it was the first time I'd ever heard this. She said she had a C-section scar that she had had for 30 years, okay? Her, her child was 30 years old in their 30s. And she had this ropey C-section scar. And with fasting, that scar just looked like a pencil line on her abdomen. It like... Old scar tissue, that sounds made up and ridiculous, but I've heard that from so many people now that it it is something that, that people experience. Scars, not all scar tissue, but some people have found scars that they have had actually over time to really, really change in their appearance. And so that lets you know that's what your body is working on during that, that time of the fast. So you know, if you're a woman on you're on the other side of menopause, I've learned a lot since I've gone through menopause myself. We do lose skin elasticity. So I very confidently told everybody, you know, because I went, I lost 80 pounds 
prior to going through menopause. And so my skin bounced back beautifully. Well, after going through menopause, I suddenly had, you know, a little sagginess here and there that I hadn't had before. <laughs> so, you know, it, it certainly did a great job removing the excess skin, but then I lost a lot of skin elasticity. I've now since started hormone replacement therapy, and so that's helping. So I'm getting back my skin elasticity. Ah. So can you explain the connection between glucose and insulin and why intermittent fasting might make us feel so much better? Well, a lot of people only think of insulin through the lens of if you're a diabetic. You know, if you're a type 1 diabetic, your body's not making insulin, you have to inject it. If you're a type 2 diabetic, you know, one day you might need to take insulin once your pancreas conks out. But really, insulin, we all have insulin, unless you're type 1 diabetic and you have to, to take insulin shots, we all produce insulin in our bodies other than if something's wrong with your pancreas. And so insulin is always there behind the scenes. And we rarely know what it's doing because no one ever measures it. And you actually can't measure it at home. But when we're becoming insulin resistant, that is something that takes years to happen. It, it can take you know, even decades. But over time, a lot of us become insulin resistant. Basically, what's happening is our bodies produce more and more and more insulin just to get the job done. So you might be somebody who has a great A1C, your blood sugar levels look perfect on paper, but behind the scenes, you're developing insulin resistance and you don't even know it. Your body is having to churn out more insulin in response to what you're putting in just to get your blood sugar down. Eventually, what happens is your A1C starts to creep up. Suddenly, your doctor says, oh, look, you're pre-diabetic. And you have no idea what's happening because it's just creeping up. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then, oop, suddenly you're diabetic. But really, the leading indicator for the fact that that was happening was your insulin level. So if I could have everybody go out, I mean, I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I was a teacher for 28 years. But from what I've learned, if everyone could go out and get their fasted insulin test done, find out what your fasted insulin level is, if it is below a 5 you're in great shape. You are not insulin resistant. If it starts to get over an eight, even though that is, quote, normal, that's a sign that you're heading towards insulin resistance. It's not unusual, though, for people to find out their number is 15, 30, 40, some really high number. And, and somebody in my private community the other day said her husband had his fasted insulin test done and his A1C done at the same time. His A1C was perfect. And his fasted insulin level was something like 20. So he was on the road to having insulin resistance because you, your body has to keep pumping out more and more of it just to keep your blood sugar under control until it can't anymore. So what does this have to do with fasting? Well, our bodies release insulin to lower our blood sugar. Because you know, we know what happens when a diabetic has really high blood sugar. That's terrible for our bodies. So we have to get that blood sugar down. Insulin tells our bodies to you know, put that blood sugar into our cells. But over time, it takes more insulin to get that job done. So fasting makes our insulin levels go down because we're not eating. We have no food coming in. So our body's not pumping out insulin constantly to counteract all that food that we're eating. That also means that we need to make sure we're not sending signals to our brain so our brain thinks food is coming in. So when we're fasting, we want to fast clean, which means no diet sodas, 
no cream, no, nothing that your brain is going to think is food coming in. You know, think about a diet soda. When you drink a diet soda, you taste that sweetness on your tongue. Your brain doesn't understand that zero calories. Your brain says, ooh, something sweet's coming in. I know what that is. That means my blood sugar is going to be going up soon. Of course, it isn't because you're drinking a diet soda, but your brain doesn't know that. So your brain goes ahead and pumps out more insulin to manage that sugar that it thinks is coming in. Only sugar doesn't come in because it was a diet soda. So when we're when we're fasting, we don't want to have anything that's going to make our brain think we need to have more insulin coming out. So we fast clean. That keeps our blood sugars you know, steady during the fast. We feel good. And when our insulin levels are low, we're able to tap into our fat stores well. Insulin is what we call anti-lipolytic, which means it's a fancy word for keeps you from burning fat. So if you've got really high levels of insulin all the time, it's going to be hard for you to tap into your fat stores till you bring it down over time. That's one reason why it can take some people longer to be metabolically flexible because they need the time with the clean fast to get their insulin levels down. And so what is it about all this and I guess intermittent fasting in general that makes us feel so much better? I mean, not just cognitively, but mood-wise. I, I notice such a difference. I think it's the ketones. When we're metabolically flexible, our brain feels amazing on ketones. And you know, I'm not I don't eat a keto diet. I am very high carb. If anything, I'm very whole food plant-based. So I eat, you know, mostly carbs. I eat a lot of beans and whole grains and, and things like that. But when I'm fasting, my body is able to flip that metabolic switch and I produce ketones. So that really keeps your brain sharp. It helps your mood. You know, there are research, there's research into um, you know, ketones and mood and the psychological effects of having more ketones in the brain. And that that tends to be a very good thing for most of us. So as a society, then, it sounds like what we're doing is we're just creating more insulin resistance in like things like diet soda, right? Where yeah. we think that we're, oh, this is good because we're not eating, but our brain thinks it's expecting sugar. Well, and think about all the water enhancers and flavored water, yeah. flavored sparkling water. Literally, there are people who start their day with flavored beverages and sweetened beverages, even if they're zero calorie, and they have a steady stream of something flavored going into their mouth from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed. Like I've seen it in our kids when I was a teacher. They were allowed to have a water bottle at their desk and it was supposed to be, you know, just water, but you know how it is. They would sneak those little water enhancers in there. And so even our kids are having that flavored water all the time. You know, I don't have hard research to back this up, but I really believe if the only change that the whole world made was in our beverages, if everybody just drank plain water and black coffee and plain tea throughout the day, even if you're not fasting, if you just stop with the constant mouth entertainment from these flavors, I really think we would see a sudden change. And the lattes, everybody stop with the lattes. I call those hot milkshakes. And, oh, you know, it's, Starbucks, it's, Frappuccino, like, yeah. just milkshakes. You're right. It's, oh. it's constant. And I remember when I was a teacher and in the workplace, this might be true for every workplace, not just a school, but 
people walked the halls, and it used to be me before I started doing intermittent fasting. People walked the halls with the to-go cup in their hand, a travel mug, you know, if they were fancy. You know, maybe it was a Yeti travel mug. I don't know. But <laughs> inside that mug was a sweetened, flavored something that they had with them all the time. Yeah, I completely agree. And then the, the other thing is, I didn't realize too, I didn't drink water. I didn't realize I was walking around literally dehydrated. So when I did drink, it would be tea with honey or do you know what I'm saying? Coffee with, you know, like a latte with a thing of sugar in it. So I didn't even realize how this was affecting me and my mood. And I'm sure my health too. It's true. But all of that you know, keeps you on that roller coaster. You know, I talked about insulin lowers your blood sugar. Let's imagine that you're, let's say you're trying to fast and you're like, well, I read on a blog or I saw on a YouTube video that it's okay to have diet sodas while you're fasting. So you're fasting and let's say your blood sugar is normal and you drink your diet soda, insulin does its job and it lowers your blood sugar. That's what it's designed to do. Except, oops, your blood sugar wasn't high and no sugar came in. Now you're going to have a crash and you're going to feel starving and shaky and be like, well, I really can't do fasting because I'm hypoglycemic or something. But honestly, it was because of that diet soda that crashed your blood sugar. Whereas if you had just had plain water, that wouldn't have happened. Now, some people will say, you know, I I try to have diet soda while fasting and I don't feel my blood sugar change. I don't feel it crash, so it must work for me. Well, if your blood sugar is high and you drink a diet soda and it crashes your blood sugar because of the insulin, you're not going to feel it because it was high and now maybe it's normal. Yeah. So you can't always tell on how, by how you feel. But, you know, avoiding diet soda during the fast, avoiding anything with flavor, fasting clean, your body will thank you. You'll have the time for your body to do the work that it needs to do. Your insulin will be low. You're reversing your um, your insulin resistance. It, it reverses metabolic syndrome. You know, my waist was so big when I was 210 pounds, I couldn't paint my own toenails. Oh, jeez. I mean, you know, anybody who has a big, big belly, that's a sign of insulin resistance. You know, like when I was pregnant and I couldn't paint my toenails, well, when I was 210 pounds, I, I couldn't see below my belly. But, you know, when I got down to my goal weight and was at my very leanest prior to going through menopause in 2018, you know, my waist was just below 27 inches. And, you know, my waist to hip ratio, my waist to height ratio were all extremely healthy. I did put on a little bit of waist measurement increase during, during the menopausal transition, but it's on its way down again now that I've started hormone replacement therapy. Ah, That's a whole different topic. <laughs> I know. So metabolic syndrome, what is that? Well, basically it's, you know, a constellation of things that happen when, when your body is insulin resistant over time that, you know, you might be overweight, your body doesn't handle your blood sugar well, you are starting to trend towards being diabetic, you've got the abdominal fat, visceral fat, maybe you have fatty liver, all that stuff works together. And when you're fasting clean and you're living an intermittent fasting lifestyle, you know, maybe the first thing your body does is clear out the fat from your fatty liver. And you can't see that that fat is gone, but your body sure knows. And now you're a whole lot healthier because a lot of people are walking around with fatty liver, not from alcohol these days, but just from lifestyle. Wow. Wow. Talk to us about the gut microbiome. And I understand, doesn't diet soda also negatively affects our gut microbiome? Absolutely. It really, really does. You know, so much of our health 
begins in our gut. And I do I do have a section on this in Cleanish because it's just really eye-opening to understand what's going on in our gut. And really learning this knowledge is fairly new because it wasn't until, I don't know, 15 years ago, probably by now, that we could really sequence what is living in the gut. And it gets better every year. They're, they're better able to, to see what's down there over time. They're getting more and more in tune with it and able to sequence the, all the different gut bugs that live there. But there are certain gut microbiome trends that are aligned with obesity, for example. And then there are certain gut bugs that are, are closely aligned or correlated to leanness and metabolic health. You can change your gut. That's the part that's amazing. You know, you're not doomed to, to what you have right now. I am certain, although I didn't have it tested, I'm certain I had a terrible gut microbiome back then. I was eating the standard American diet. I wasn't sending down very many vegetables. And the healthy gut bugs do well with all those plant foods that, you know, our grandmother told us to eat, all those high fiber foods. And I'm not talking about a fiber supplement. I'm talking about you yeah. know, <laughs> getting the actual beans, for example. Yeah. yeah. A healthy gut can tolerate beans. A healthy gut can tolerate grains. Unfortunately, if you do not feed your gut well, the bad gut bugs, not only do they send you cravings for the junk foods, like they start craving more sugar and the ultra processed foods, but some of these bad gut bugs actually destroy the lining of your gut, leading to you know, like they don't have any fiber to munch on, so they munch on the gut lining itself. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you end up with leaky gut. And then mm. you get to the point where you can't tolerate beans and grains and all those high-fiber foods because your gut lining is damaged. But you can rebuild the good stuff. There's a great book, Fiber Fueled is the name of it. Dr. Will, and I can't say his last name. It starts with a B. Bullshit. I don't know. It's a hard <laughs> last name to say. <laughs> starts with a B. Will something or other. But Fiber Fueled is the name of the book. So he's a gastroenterologist. And he helps patients heal their gut. And it can be done. So, you know, let's say you can't tolerate a lot of high fiber foods now. Unless you have, you know, celiac or something, you you can do a lot of things to change what you can tolerate. And a healthy gut is going to be a healthy you. Our immune system, our mood comes out of our gut, our yep. cravings. The more we learn, the more we know yeah. how powerful it is. Most serotonin is made in the yep. gut. Exactly. And, you know, this brings me to my son's story, which we haven't talked about yet, but I talk about in Cleanish in the beginning of it. And I'm pretty sure my, my younger son, Will, when he was a baby, he had thrush. And so I'm pretty sure he had a terrible gut microbiome, which probably is directly correlated to what I ate when I was pregnant with him. I already had a toddler at home, so I ate a lot of McDonald's. Embarrassing. I wouldn't like to go back and have a redo, but I didn't know any better. That's a then. really interesting story, though. I'm really glad that you shared that, Jen, in your book, because that's what really sucked me in because I saw where you started. Right, right. And, you know, I just, we were all brought up at least those of us that are similar in age to me, we went through school hearing, well, you need to eat fruits and vegetables because of the vitamins and minerals that are in the fruits and vegetables. Or you can take a Flintstones vitamin. And I'm like, well, sign me up for that. I'll just take a Flintstones vitamin and I'm, I don't need to eat those vegetables I don't like. So I did not. And when we were pregnant, they they told us, I mean, they're 
I know there were people talking about the importance of nutrients and food, but all I heard was take your prenatal vitamin. It's got everything you need to build a healthy baby. So I took that prenatal vitamin every single day, washed it down with whatever it was I was having with my McDonald's meal. I'm a Coke. I didn't know what I was doing because we really, we didn't understand the importance of the gut microbiome at that time. And so I mean, I wasn't drinking Diet Coke at least while I was pregnant. I did, okay, I did know, not, I did know not to have the artificial. You know, I did, I did know that much. But you, no matter what I was having, I was still having that McDonald's meal with it. Was definitely not giving my baby the nutrients that he needed, and prenatal vitamins were not making up for the real food I should have been having. So he was born with, a, I think, a pretty terrible gut. And looking back and knowing what I know now, he would have terrible tantrums as a toddler. To the point that he got kicked out of daycares and private schools and all sorts of things. And yeah, I was a teacher. This was very hard for me. I couldn't control my own son. He's getting kicked out of schools. But a lot of times his behavior problems would coincide. He would have like foamy diarrhea at the same time. Wow. So I know his gut was in really bad shape. Luckily, at that time, we found the Feingold program. Mm-hmm. There was a teacher. Um, her name was Miss Karen. Right before we got kicked out of that that private school, she said, um, you know, could it be what he's eating? What did he have for breakfast? And that day I had fed him some cat in the hat cereal. And they, they only made that for a very short time. Huh. And when I was writing clean, I was just like, am I imagining that? I went back and looked it up. No, it was a real thing. It turned red from the milk and uh. it had all that red dye in it. Uh. And I, she's like, well, red dye, Miss Karen said, can cause behavior problems in kids. I'm like, what? That makes no sense. I'm a teacher. I've never heard of that. So I started Googling, or back then I think I was Yahooing, <laughs> and I found, sure enough, people had been talking about that since the 1970s when Dr. Feingold you know, found with his children, um, his children that had ADHD, or they just called it ADD back then, or hyperactivity, those children did better when they changed their diets and they ate real food and stopped with the artificial flavors, artificial colors, preservatives, and even a class of food called salicylates. And I was like, well, it's worth a try. So we took Will and our other son, Cal, off of all those things. We cleaned up their diet. They only ate the real foods. And the change was remarkable. So that's what really got me going down the road of, oh, food cannot just affect your weight. Because that's all I had thought of it before was, am I gaining weight or losing weight? That was what food did. You either gained weight or lost weight. And then you took your vitamin. It didn't matter what you ate. But then I realized, wait a minute food affects your brain. And it's not just giving them a vitamin and making sure they're, you know, I gave them, this is so embarrassing. I gave both of my children Yoo-Hoo in their sippy cups instead What's of that? Yoo-Hoo. Oh my God. It's like the worst Franken food imaginable. Oh. It is, it's like supposed corn to be ch- and- chocolate milk, but it's yeah. not milk. It's corn syrup. Yes. But they yeah. pack it full of vitamins. That is how uninformed I was way back then. And it had more vitamins in it. It was like giving them a vitamin pill, basically, with corn syrup and chocolate flavor. I mean, do not give that to your children. I'm so sorry that I did, but I didn't know. I just thought about, I thought about food as the vitamins and the minerals that were in it. And I, you know, there are thousands of phytochemicals in a strawberry. We don't even know what they all do. You know, you might be able to say, if I said, what's in a strawberry, people might be able to say like vitamin C, right? Mm-hmm. But there are thousands of phytochemicals in that strawberry, and we don't even know what they all do. To say 
this strawberry is good because it's giving you vitamin C is missing out on all those other thousands of compounds and what they may or may not be doing in our bodies. You can't replace that with strawberry flavored Yoohoo. No. Ew. <laughs> I know. But, but, you know, so many people don't know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I feel so blessed because my father was all about health from the time I was little. So I knew these things, but I remember, you know, when my kids were little, parents would look at us and say, wait a minute, that's not kid food. That's adult food. Here's the macaroni and cheese, right? Right. And my kids, like, you know, they'd eat salads and sushi and like they, they just never thought anything of it because that's how, what they grew up with, right? We all, we get used to what we know. It's true. And it's, you know, it's not too late if your kids are, are picky eaters or if they've been trained to eat, you know, the yoo like I did. <laughs> you you can change it. And they might really push back for a while. But I have a section in my book, Cleanish, about how to make the transition as a family and letting the kids get involved with that. Kids understand when you teach them about food and teach them about the gut microbiome. I mean, you can yes. teach kids so many things. Teach them about reading ingredient labels. Like, you're going shopping and there are brands of yogurt that will work very, very well for your kid. It's just a matter of reading those labels and finding the ones with the real food ingredients without the artificial flavors, the artificial colors. Have them help you pick it out. And your kid, if the kid has a role in picking it out yes, or helping you prepare the dinner, all of that, your kid is more likely to be willing to eat it and teach them why. Why are we eating these real foods? It's powerful. Kids are smart. They understand when you really, really teach it to them. They absolutely are. And then the other side to that is if you are a family that is really focused on clean, good food, whole foods, you might have a kid like I did with my son where all his friends are eating fast food. And so that's all he wants to eat. And so when he goes with them, that's what they eat. And then my husband started, you know, he'd pick them up from, you know, school and Marcus would convince them that, oh, can we just go to, I can't even remember what his favorite one was, like Taco Bell or something disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And we were just like, you know, it, we didn't allow it all the time, but he did. He would take them there sometimes. And that was all Marcus wanted. And we were like, what have we done as parents? Why isn't he like our daughter? You know, well, right. they're, they're different. But here's the funny but, story. But he's gone oh, go back ahead. is my point. Okay. My point is now he's totally into, you know, whole healthy foods. He doesn't eat any fast food anymore. So he went back. It took a couple yep. of years because of peer pressure, right? Well, it's true. I remember my son, Will, the younger one, who we changed all you know for him. He said to me a few years ago, it wasn't that many years ago. I think he might have been in high school at the time. He said, why have we never been to Taco Bell? I've never eaten at Taco Bell. Huh. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was when you said Taco Bell that made me laugh. But I'm like, well, I, I never thought of that. I, I never took you to Taco Bell. That is true. <laughs> He had never eaten there. And, you know, it's funny. My two children now, my older one, he was the one when he was little, he only ate foods that were beige. Oh, and, and I totally catered to that. But now he's an adult. He lives in San Francisco. He's married. He's married to a vegetarian. And he is now mostly vegetarian. He is mostly vegetarian. He'll he'll still eat meat, you know, here and there, but they don't have it at home. And, you know, he eats all the vegetables. So they will change and grow. And and my other son, Will, he still tends to have that attraction for the junky foods sometimes, but he's he's only 23. So hopefully he'll start. <laughs> but yeah. he will eat all the foods if you serve them to him. Left to his own devices, no, but... <laughs> 
I also think, and this is what your book really talks about, is once you start eating whole foods, you just feel so much better. It's true. Yeah. And and I didn't start with the whole foods when I started intermittent fasting. I went to intermittent fasting with the standard American diet because I, I didn't talk about this part, but when we, we changed everything over for the children, I think Will's gut healed through all those years of not putting the junk in. And so when he got to the end of elementary school, we started reintroducing things and he was able to tolerate them. I'm like, oh, he's all better now. So then we went back to eating everything. Uh. So I didn't understand, again, the long-term you know, health. Now I do. I would not have done that if I could go back in time. But, you know, we we were eating everything again. So when I started intermittent fasting, I was like, I'm so tired of trying to restrict foods. I'm just going to eat whatever I want in my eating window. But gradually over time, especially the more I learned about the gut microbiome, I started putting better food in. And without even consciously deciding to take things out, I stopped craving them or wanting them. And so then like one of those things I used to love, like I had this type of Pop-Tarts I loved. They were like chocolate Pop-Tarts with the white creamy inside and white frosting. I loved those. And um, a few years ago, I had one. I think my mom bought them and put them in our stockings or something. And I was like, well, let me, I used to love this. It tasted like poison. Yeah. And I can't believe, I literally loved it. And so, you know, like a Starbucks, you know, holiday latte or pumpkin spice, or I used to love the gingerbread lattes. Mm-hmm. And I stopped drinking all of that. And then one year, my window was open. I think I was at Target. They had a Starbucks. I was like, you know, my window is open. I'm going to have you know, my favorite latte. I, it tasted like rat poison. <laughs> and I'm like, they have changed the recipe. No, I just no longer like artificial flavors at all. Yeah. And all that. your brain. Yeah. I, I can't. I, I'm like, whoa, gross. <laughs> that didn't happen overnight. But I, the best part of it is I didn't have to work at it. It just happened. The more real foods I ate, the more I liked real foods. Yeah. Yeah. Your brain plays along. I'm telling you. It does. You. Okay. So before I let you go, I do want to um, make a comment about the fine gold diet because I had read about it in your book. I've heard about it, obviously. And I remember thinking, I don't know, there was like mixed reviews on the fine gold diet. This was all going to turn out good, by the way. Okay, good. Um, And so I, you know, the first place I typically go when I want information is I went to Attitude magazine and I wanted to find out what their take on the fine gold diet is with ADHD and ADHD symptoms. And this is what what I found. So the fine gold diet is controversial. Some ADHD experts dismiss it, some support it, and some create their own treatment version based on Dr. Feingold's work. No well-designed studies have been conducted on the Feingold program as a whole, but many have been conducted on various aspects of the diet. A 2004 meta-analysis, for example, supports the hypothesis that artificial food dyes promote hyperactivity and that sensitivities in these dyes may not be limited to people with clear-cut hyperactivity syndromes. The reviewer pointed out that most of the studies were done using doses of food dye that are way below what people may be exposed to in the real world. And then they went on to say a 2007 study published in Lancet found that food additives, particularly artificial colors and the preservative sodium benzoate, increased hyperactivity in three, eight, and nine-year-old children with or without ADHD. So while in the U.S., the FDA, you know, they've been reluctant to require a warning label on products containing food dye, that decision has already been made in Europe 
leading uh-huh. to the removal of many of the artificial food dyes from product and the increasing use of natural coloring. And the American Academy of Pediatrics wrote in 2008 that a trial of a preservative-free, food-coloring-free diet is a reasonable intervention. And an included editor's note said that the new research may require that even we skeptics who have long doubted parental claims of the effects of various foods on the behavior of their children admit we might have been wrong. So it, it was, I mean, I saw it and with my own eyes, with my children in a way that was, I mean, you can't, you can't argue with it because it was just so striking. My dad, I remember the day my dad finally believed me. We were at, at their house and my sister had baked two cakes. It was my dad's birthday. She had baked one cake that, and we put Cal and Will both on the Fine Gold program just because I didn't have want to have one child eating differently than the other one. And I'm like, well, Cal doesn't need it, but Will does. So they're both going to eat like that. So my sister made a cake that Will and Cal could have, and that didn't have any of the, you know, the, like a real the, cake, like a, homemade a real, cake. yes. Yeah. She well, she made homemade cake, but both of them were homemade cakes. But this one ah. didn't have artificial flavors, colors. Like real vanilla versus imitation vanilla, for example. Your real vanilla is more expensive, but the artificial vanillin is the, actually what it's called, and it, it's it's not one you want. But she she knew what to do, but it was a real cake, like one your great-great-grandmother would have made with just real stuff. But she also made my dad's favorite cake, which did have some artificial flavors and colors in there and all that. Well, Will knew, the younger one knew that one of the cakes he was going to get to have, but we hadn't really gone into the details. So he snuck some frosting (laughs) from the wrong cake when no one was looking. And we realized what had happened because he literally turned into a different child in front of everybody. They're like, "What what is wrong with him? And then we realized he had had some of the icing off that, the wrong cake. And my dad went, oh. I see. <laughs> you know, and he doesn't say a lot, but he became a believer that day. You know, teachers in school became a believer when he also had trouble with chemicals. Like he was in the bathroom and someone sprayed a bunch of Lysol, one of the, you know, custodians. And then he starts acting crazy. And the pre-K teacher was like, oh my gosh, you were right. That is what happened. Because it it was like a switch was flipped with his brain and you could really see it. And with Cal, the one that quote, didn't need it, he actually did need it. We didn't realize how much it affected him. When he was in kindergarten, um, we'd been eating this way. They had been eating this way for mm, over a year probably at this point. And he had some kind of cough or something. So he got prescribed some cough syrup with red dye in it. But it was Cal. It didn't matter. So I'm like, no big deal. So I gave him the cough syrup with the red dye. He went to school as normal. His teacher brought him down to my classroom. And if you're a teacher and your kids are at your same school, you never want to see them show up at your door with their teacher. That's not a good <laughs> sign. <laughs> and he was in big trouble. He had stomped his foot, refused to do his work. That was not like him. He ended up skipping um, skipping a grade himself. But he always did his work. He loved to do his work. That was his favorite thing. But that red food dye in that cough syrup, he was melting down. He had never done that in kindergarten. So I was like, oh, maybe he shouldn't have that. Took him off the medication. He was fine. Wow. You know, I think what I love most about what I consistently hear you say in your books is that, and it's kind of a permutation of what I always say, you say that you are the number one authority on you and how you feel. 
I love that you believe in bioindividuality, that there's no one size fits all approach to health and nutrition. And so what works for one person, it's kind of like, you know, your kids, like one of them was clearly much more sensitive than the other child and how you approach health and nutrition, looking at that individual person as a whole. So um, I just really appreciate that because I think there has been so much just in every area, right, of this is the way everybody does it, so this is the way you should do it. And it's just not true. Or someone, like I pretty much realized at one point as someone who had read a million diet books when I was struggling with being obese and trying to figure it out, I realized every single diet book was written by somebody and that was the diet that worked for them. Yeah. (laughs) And so they're like, here is the diet that everyone should follow. And so they would write this diet book based on what worked for their body and then you would try it and you'd be like, that feel terrible. I thought this was supposed to feel great. And then they would find all the evidence of why this was the best diet for everybody and, you know, with the scientific research, you can find evidence to support anything, really. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the thing about, you know, figuring out what foods work for you and also finding what intermittent fasting lifestyle works for you. I do not have a here is how everyone should do it. There's when you should eat, what you should eat, how long your eating window should be. It's going to be very, very different. There are people who feel best with an early in the day eating window. Some people like a middle of the day eating window. I like a late in the day eating window. That's how I feel the best. Me too. But Yep, that just works really well for me. And I can't even understand those morning people. But there are enough of them. They genuinely don't feel well if they eat late in the day. They need to eat first thing. And then they stop eating maybe around noon and they don't eat anymore. And they go to bed and they sleep great and they wake They know how they feel the best. So that's the thing about intermittent fasting, about finding the foods that work for you. It's all about you are your own experiment of one. You're your study of one. And I want you to be empowered to figure out what makes you feel your best. Because feeling good means you're on the right track. You know, if you're feeling better and better and better over time, that's a really good sign that what you're doing works for your body. And of course, with intermittent fasting, when you start, you might feel really terrible for the first first couple of weeks as your body is adapting. So that's the period where you ignore the feeling you're not going to feel good at first because your body is learning how to be metabolically flexible. You might feel like you have brain fog, you're you know, wandering around in jello. That does get better once your body adapts. But over time, the longer you do intermittent fasting, the better you feel. And the more in tune with your body you get. Well, and that's the goal. It's to feel good, yeah. right? And we are yeah. the only people who can determine what feels good for us. Exactly. Nobody else can do that. No, I just, I love it. And I, I love what you're doing. Jen, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what well, you do? you can go to jenstevens.com. Jen is spelled G-I-N, like gin and tonic, and Stevens has a P-H. So jenstevens.com. There are links there to all of my work, my books, my podcasts. Intermittent Fasting Stories is a great podcast um, to listen to people who tell their intermittent fasting stories. I think it's a lot like like your podcast, Tracy, people with their ADHD stories. Well, mine is people with their intermittent fasting stories. And, you know, they run the gamut of of really how it's changed their life. You know, health victories, weight loss, so it's many inspiring. things. It's inspiring. It's really so inspiring. inspiring. And I'm so grateful yeah. to get to do this work. And, you know, you can find my books. Delay Don't Deny is only on Amazon, but my other books are anywhere books are sold. And then, you know, I also have a private community for people who are doing intermittent fasting. There's a link to it at jenstevens.com slash community. So people can find that. I left Facebook completely in 
um, gosh, what year is it? 22. I left in 2021 and um, I have a private community that's, it's a lot safer. Let's just say <laughs> we're all there together and no one just wanders in off the street with some of that Facebook nonsense, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's it's totally non-toxic. <laughs> I love it. So yes. all of this is going to be in the show notes. Jen, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we leave, just a quick reminder that our early bird $200 off promotion for our first ever January offering of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK will be starting today, and it's going to be open until Tuesday, December 6th. If you're interested, pop on over to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK and give yourself something for the holidays by using the promo code HOLIDAYS. I would love to have you join us. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Jen, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.